Kinging wave, Fox Beard, Locker's action, very weird. Captain Pike, Cisco's wife, Klingons, and the afterlife. Boimler, Tendi's dog, Ransom is very harsh. Four drive, Black Alert, Giorgio has gone berserk. Teacher, bad left, Edward is an idiot, Fuck is dead, Wolf is wed, Chekhov's wearing red. Tita's cat, Kempak's cat, Q has had enough of that. Beam me up, make it so, everybody let's go. We are Well, good evening, Trekkies and Trekkers around the globe. It is Thursday, June 1st, 2023. It is 7.30 p.m. Eastern Daylight Saving Time. That means we are live. Our phone number here is 646-668-2433. So let your fingers do the walking and call Trek Talk. And we've got a great show planned for you guys tonight. We have with us Laura Bay, the author of The Wrath of Juan, the making of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and other wild Hollywood adventures as an Amazon in outer space. And she'll be with us live to take your call. So you want to get to dial her right now so you can talk to her live. Welcome to episode 533. We have 124,658 downloads of the podcast as of right now, which is really, really awesome. Um, oh, I'm hearing some. I'm hearing some back noise. Did you guys hear that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know where. It's I'm on mute, dude. So I'm not sure what that is. Yep. There we go. Now it's gone. Oh, oh, it's gone. It's gone. That, that's the problem with doing live shows, guys. You get stuff like that from time to time. Anyways, I'm your most excellent host, and I'm up here in Vermont, and with me, as usual, is Eric. Eric's out in Portland. How are you doing tonight, Eric? I am doing quite well, Jim. Uh, it is a beautiful day here in Portland, and uh, I've just read this book, which uh, was really a joy to read, and so I'm very excited to have Laura on the show and to be able to talk to her today. So, yeah, and I'm digging you it. You know what's odd? I read the book as well, so I'm kind of no excited way. to talk to her about it. No yes. way. <laughs> Very cool. And uh, we all live with us from Portland, Paul. How are you doing tonight, Paul? Hey, Uncle Jim. I'm doing well. I'm doing good. A lot of stuff got done this week. <laughs> so it's been kind of, uh, I don't know about everyone else, but I feel like May was just hurtling along at like warp nine. It's just crazy crazy fast so i can't believe it's june 1st but uh, it was a productive month so there you go it's it's not only is it june 1st but it's it's my birthday as well so this is my birthday bath, so. oh so. way to keep it on the qt man that's very <laughs> now the whole world knows jim i know tell me about it you the show very rarely does it actually fall on my birthday but this year it did so that's pretty cool and I decided to talk to Laura about Star Trek II on my birthday, so that I can do that because it's my show. 
And uh, last but not least, I want to introduce Charles, and Charles is out in Las Vegas. How are you doing tonight, Charles? I'm doing good. Haven't read the book, but let's see if I want to want to read the book. Uh, we're doing pretty you good out here. Do. Haven't hit, tri- haven't hit triples yet. We know it's going to come soon, but we haven't yet. What is that? Hello? Me. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> That's really hey, odd. Charles. All right. A little background noise there. We're all good. A little background noise. That's all right. All right, Eric. Well, why don't we do our fan shout-outs and get us get the show started? All right. Well, we always like to give a big shout-out to our fans who support the podcast right at the top of the show here. And our very first fan shout-out goes out to uh, in a little area just across the pond we like to say hello to from time to time. Andy Tate is saying hello from Castleford, West Yorkshire in the U.K. And uh, Andy sends us a little Union Jack flag emoji which I think is, uh, I just love that flag. It's such a cool-looking flag. Andy, thank you so much for supporting us over there in the U.K. and for uh, telling all your friends about Trek Talking. Let's spread the word. Also saying hello this week and sending out a big shout-out to Dave Clark. Dave Clark is saying hello to us from Canberra, Australia. That's right, down under. Dave, wow, I cannot wait to visit your continent one of these days. Never been there. Uh, But thank you so much for supporting our podcast down there in Australia. Marco Tomasini is saying hello to us this week from Italy. And Marco, we're saying live long and prosper to you. Thank you for listening to us and for interacting with us on our Facebook page. Also, Freak de Costa is saying hello from North Brandbent in the Netherlands. The Netherlands is one of those countries that I love to talk about because uh, it's all mostly below sea level, which just fascinates me. So uh, one of these days I will visit that country and I will check it out firsthand. Freak de Costa, thank you so much for saying hello to us. And Charles, I think you'd probably like to bring it back to, well, sort of your part of the country. Well, sort of. Let's start off with Roberto Nito from Santa Domingo, Pueblo, New Mexico. Welcome, Roberto. Top fan, Joshua, Joshua Ray Martinez from Texas. And our top fans are people who have been interacting a lot with our, with our page. So i got to feel you. Andrea Moon from Jupiter, Florida. I'm not sure where Jupiter, Florida is. I have to look that one up. And my third top fan, Matt Hall from Clarksville, Tennessee. Since Dave's not here, man, I also got top fan Derek Creel from Columbus, Georgia. Welcome, Derek. Deborah Saffer from Jacksonville, Florida. Another Florida person. I wonder if Deborah knows where Jupiter is. Kathy Liebert Taylor from Washington State. Are you from the wet side or the dry side? I prefer the wet side. Sin Mills from Hollywood. Oh, Austin, are you famous? Should we know you? So, Paul, who's on your list? 
All right, man. Well, this is always a fun segment, I think, because it reminds us that Star Trek is such an international phenomenon because we've got people as far flung from the middle of Idaho to the middle of Europe. So first of all, I'd like to say hello and kapla to a wonderful fan by the name of Andreas Lehmann in Walsesvitz-Metternich near Cologne, Germany. Absolutely awesome part of the country. Andreas, I would like to be there for Oktoberfest myself in a couple of months. Oh, if I could make that happen, that'd be really cool. But uh, hello, and thank you so much for reaching out to us. Greetings also go out to Roland Amman in Ingolstadt, Bavaria, not too far away. I think uh, Roland and Andreas are you know, almost within uh, a day's driving distance, if not less. So that's pretty cool there. We've got folks in Bavaria who are big-time Star Trek fans. Greetings and kapla also to Sharon Gallagher, east end of Glasgow, so a little bit farther away than I can tell you're a fan, and it's great to hear from you. Thanks for engaging with our program and for being a fan of the show. And finally, for me, it's Fungwis Chun in Hong Kong, one of the dazzling lights of the Pacific. Absolutely great to hear from you, Fungwis, and uh, hope you're having a great time. Thanks for checking in with us here on Trek Talking. I'll pass it over to you, Uncle Jim. All right. Thank you, Paul. Well, first of all, I want to say thank you and complaud a top fan, R. Coltier, who's listening to us in Brooklyn, New York. I also want to say hello and thank you to Gary Andrew B., who's listening to us in New York, New York. And we want to say thank you and complaud to top fan, Elizabeth Gallant, who's listening to us right now in Massachusetts. And last but not least, Top fan, Greg Smith, who's listening to us in St. Louis, Missouri. And that wraps up our fan shout-outs, guys. And now it's time for... I shall leave you as you left me, as you left her. My room for all eternity, the center of a dead planet. Buried alive. Buried alive. And of course, that's from the awesome Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, because we have with us live on the line, Laura Banks. How are you doing tonight, Laura? Oh, I am just having the time of my life over here listening to all these shout-outs all over the country, and then hearing Khan come on and scare everybody. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, we, we, we have a lot of followers on our Facebook page, and we always ask them to drop us a line, tell us where they're Love listening it. from, and then we give them a shout-out. So um, well, your new book. Jupiter is just due of... north of Miami, by the way. Jupiter is just due, is north of Miami. Oh, that's right. I, I read in your book that you're living in Florida, correct? Mm-hmm. Well, I used to I used to hide out in Florida. At the end of my book, there when I was writing, I was I, I said I was hiding out because that's what it felt like. Um, but no, now I've moved to Asheville. You can't keep up, actually. Yeah, they'll have to do an addition to the book. They'll have to make a part two. <laughs> the search for yes. Laura. <laughs> so, um, I, I was reading in your book, and I, I read that you had worked with Roger Corman on a movie called Demon of Paradise. Um, yes. And, of course, I went and found it and watched it. And I got to say, you definitely got what you deserved in that movie. 
and uh, you got yeah. pulled down into a giant hole. And I noticed through your book that you have an issue with the word hole, and you mentioned it several times <laughs> in the book. <laughs> so, what, what is that all about? <laughs> oh, gosh. I wish I knew. You know, there are parts of my brain that not only does no one know, but I, I don't know. There's something dark about it. There's something, you know, you fall into a hole or you, you know, you get a hole in your shirt. You know, it's just dark and wrong. <laughs> and getting pulled down into a hole on the floor by a giant <laughs> demon creature. Yes, That's not good yes. either. That's what did it. <laughs> and uh, I also I also read in your book what something that interested me is that you actually worked with Whoopi Goldberg before uh, she was actually Whoopi Goldberg. Well, she was always Whoopi Goldberg, but before we knew her on Star Trek. Yes, this is a one of my favorite stories in The Wrath of Blonde. I, I talk about how when I first moved to San Diego, I didn't know anyone, and answered an ad for an improv troupe that was forming that I found myself face-to-face with Whoopi Goldberg uh, in this troupe before she was discovered, a few years before it really started to take off, 1979. And years later, I and I had a great time with her then. We did improv, and she fought to keep me in the troupe. And she was so talented that all you could do was stand back and support her on stage because she was so talented at what she did. But then fast forward to New York City at her one-woman show, Spook Show, and uh, we, I was backstage, and she told me that, she said, Laura, you were the first person that I knew in a movie who was famous. I was watching Star Trek II, and my daughter, Alexandria, said, Mommy, Mommy, isn't that the girl from Improv? So Alexandria recognized me, and I, I somehow take credit for what be going on into Star Trek because I was the first person famous person she saw in a movie well that that is awesome that is awesome but not only did you work with Whoopi Goldberg I found the whole improv thing fascinating because I I wasn't aware of that either but you also you also worked with Andy Kaufman as well in the book and Robin yes, Williams I if did. I remember I did I did it's so noisy we can't get anything with that sound huh we can't get rid of that sound oh I don't know what I don't want to miss word here. I don't either. When I went mute, it wasn't me. <laughs> Let me see. But um, it's like someone's in the kitchen or something. There we go. Now it's oh. gone. Now oh it's, my gone. God. Right. it's gone. Sounds so much better. <laughs> oh, I'm just I just went down the, the line and machine. <laughs> muting people until it went away. Now we can really oh. hear everybody well. Now now Fantastic. we can hear you loud and clear. Oh, okay. Let's start over. No, I'm kidding. Uh, what was the last question? <laughs> I was where well, we were talking about Whoopi Goldberg, and I mentioned that you had yes. also worked with Andy Kaufman and, and Robin Williams a little bit too. Well, it was a crazy, crazy time to be in a crazy, crazy place, and my whole book kind of has that Forrest Gump, Mrs. Maisel thing going on, where it was I turn around and one celebrity after another. So my my troop, Spontaneous Combustion in San Diego, made its way up the coast of Los Angeles to the Comedy Store on Sunset Boulevard. And we auditioned for Mitzi Shore on the main stage, which was like in its prime. I mean, stand-up was just, you know, in its prime. And, and my troop quickly disbanded after this audition. I really don't know what happened, 
But then I found myself at the store and I wasn't leaving because every night I'm hanging out with Robin Williams, Andy Kaufman, Howie Mandel, Jay Leno, Dave Letterman, you know, just incredible. Billy Crystal, everyone's working on their, on their, you know, act and their, you know, Billy was a little farther along. He was on Saturday Night Live at the time, but Robin was just in Mork and Mindy and taking flight, uh, changing comedy as we know it. And then I was able to actually ask, David Letterman out and on a date, but you'll have to buy my book to see what happened. Don't tell. Yep. I, um, yep. The rest of I also, um, <laughs> you also had a run in with Jack Nicholson in the book as well. What was he like? That's a very funny story where I was waitressing in a lipstick lesbian bar in West Hollywood. Do you guys know what a lipstick lesbian is? Well, you describe anyway. it in the book. You definitely yeah, describe it in the book. To, <laughs> They'll have to read the book to yeah. find out. Yeah. <laughs> now, I'll tell you, it's a very beautiful lesbian. It's a feminine lesbian, right? It's a beautiful feminine lesbian. So, so I was waitressing in a, a lipstick lesbian bar in, in Hollywood, and and at midnight they let in uh, a couple of guys, and two of them were uh, Jack Nicholson and Warren Beatty. And Jack proceeded to hit on me, and it's a funny story. And I go on about it quite a bit about kind of what happened with me and Jack. Yeah, and what I mean, what what kind of he was amazing. Kind of he was amazing to talk to. He was so cool. I was an actress, new to Hollywood. I was like, "What's it like being an actor in Hollywood?" He's like, "Oh, well, you know, I only came here to look at movie stars. I never thought I'd be one." And then I said, "Well, what's your greatest challenge as an actor?" And you know, he goes, "Well." Um, I guess it's someone who can't play up to the level I I play in a in a scene. And at first I'm kind of thinking that's kind of arrogant, but then when you really give it some thought, Nicholson can get away with saying that because he's so extraordinary on camera. Uh, I I was later asked, able to ask Richard Dreyfus the same question at GalaxyCon in October at, in the green room having dinner with Richard Dreyfus. I said Jack Nicholson said that he has to. His disappointment is with a, an actor in a, in a scene that can't play at his level. Do you agree? And and Dreyfus said, I hear what he's saying, it was, but, but my answer is different. He goes, my answer is I will bring that person up. I will, you know, bring that person up, you know. And I thought, what a better answer. Wow. I, uh, did Nicholson have that, that charisma that he has, that he portrays on screen in person? Oh, I mean, thing about movie stars, and I've you know met a, a few of them, and always for some reason around celebrities, from Ben Affleck in a green room with an incident with him to Shatner to uh, all the cast of Star Trek I've toured with and, and hung out with Jimmy and George and and Michelle, and these were like people that in my prime when the movie first came out I was traveling with. Nicholson was a league of his own, where I believe there's a certain energy field coming off of supernova people like that. Shatner has it as well. There aren't that many that have it. I don't know if it's an energy field or a focus that they have or an intensity that they have. I, I how do you describe it? But it's 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 like a powerful force of air coming at you. You know, you you, you lose your breath. You know, and and part of it maybe is how familiar they are to you from all the years of seeing them in movies. You know, uh, or, or what it is. But but it, it it's uh it's unbelievable when you experience ongoing connection to to superstars they they really are 
you got to be cool, wow. you know. It's like it's easy to be nerf- nervous, but you got to be cool because they're just people, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that for me was hard because I was in starlit and new to Hollywood, and it's 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 still hard for me sometimes when I meet you know very very famous people because they're so well I'm, powerful. I'm going to ask you one more question, and then I'm going to pass the microphone over to Eric. So, uh, okay. Wrath of Khan was that your that was your first movie gig, correct? Wrath of Khan was my first movie gig. That is correct. Yeah how how did that? Well, I read the book, so I know. But how did how did that <laughs> happen? How did you end up on the Wrath of Khan? Well, my big message in the Wrath of Blonde and in in making the Wrath of Khan is you got to go for your dreams. You gotta risk failure. You gotta go. You gotta go do. You can't lollygag or kind of half half-ass it. You gotta go for it, and that's what I had done. I'd risked everything, moved to L.A. from Kansas City with five hundred dollars to my name and not knowing anyone. And I kept looking at Drama Log magazine for any kind of break because I didn't have any inside track or nepotism. I didn't go to a, a Yale or one of these. I had you know just luck if I were to get a break. And sure enough, there was an ad in the back of this casting magazine in, in Los Angeles that was literally me. It was my measurements, my height, my hair color, my everything. And uh, I called Central Casting, which was the advertiser. I said, this is me, guys. They didn't put the name of the major motion. They said major motion picture, right? They didn't say what the picture was. And I flew down to Central Casting, and they took a look at me, and then I went to Paramount, and uh, Nick Meyer was there with some people, and he looked up at me, and we conversed for a little while, and I didn't know if I'd gotten it or not, so I went back to work at my little desk job in L.A., and the boss up front said, Laura Banks, you have a call on line four, and it was, and they go, this is Paramount. You got the part. You got to come here. Can you quit your job for a month? This is, we, we may or may not need you that long, but you got to, you know, if you want this job, you got to get it. So that's how I got it, and, and the role was for another girl, Lana Clarkson, who, who passed away, unfortunately. It was a role that, that was supposed to go to Lana, and Lana, unfortunately, was the gal who was murdered by Phil Spector, if you remember that story. Kind wow. of an inside thing. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. You oh, know, and my book goes off about that a little bit, how scary Hollywood really is and what I did survive. Some of it wasn't so fun. Now, were you a Star Trek fan at the time, and did you know that how being in the Wrath of Khan would affect the rest of your life at that time? Absolutely not. No, I had no idea. I walked onto the set. I noticed a lot of tunnels and steel and cat- catacombs, and there was no sign of the bridge yet, no sign of Seti Alpha 5 with the dust yet. It was just quickly getting a nod and cast outside the area where the, where the bridge was. So I am now a big fan, and no, at the time I was not. And I didn't know what the I didn't know anything. I didn't know what kind of I didn't know anything about the movie or what I was making. All right. Well, Eric, I'll pass the microphone over to you. Oh, Laura, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, I also had a lot of fun, like Jim, reading the book. Um, you know, one of the things that I'm always interested in, especially with people that we get who are Star Trek fans, presumably, what's your Star Trek origin story? Were you always a Star Trek fan, or did you just get into it because you got the movie part? Or 
I, I got into it because I got the movie part. I, I, I you know, it was, you know, I believe in karma. I'm an astrologer. You know, I, there were so many elements to this. Like I, I was born March 23rd. William Shatner, who in The Wrath of Blonde, I do talk about, you know, he and I had an intimate connection for about four months where we dated. And Leonard Nimoy was born on the 24th. So, you know, there was a lineage of birthdays. There was, there was something just meant to be about it. And, uh, I've always loved science fiction, and I and I have fallen in love, obviously, with with Gene Roddenberry and its message. And in The Wrath of Blonde, I go on quite a bit about the discoveries that were made within Star Trek and the message, which is so much about unity and and creation and coming together of ethnicities of all kind and hard word to say, but everything about it, I love. Yeah, and you know, related to that, you there's one quote that you had in the book that I thought was particularly interesting because I think that I sort of follow the same philosophy in a lot of ways, and I think a lot of people maybe follow the same philosophy, whether they're conscious to it or not. But you said, um, "I create what I focus on," and the idea is, uh, mm. in the, co- the context was that you know, if you can control your thoughts and you can um, sort of you know live in the create the world that you want to see so to speak it will start to form around you and i think that's a really cool uh, idea ah uh, i'm i'm so glad you're bringing that up trek talk uh trek trekmovie.com you're tre- trek talker uh trek talk trekmovie.com gave me a great review except that he didn't understand that part he said i don't believe you know what is what is this with her saying here if you think a happy thought you can be happy well Obviously, that sounds naive, but when you put it the way you put it, absolutely, there that is it. What you focus on expands. What you think about all the time is what you will get. If you're thinking negative thoughts, you're going to get more of that. The brain is a trickster. It's not your friend. You have to be doing a constant interruptus because it will be frightened. So somehow the mechanism of the brain is survival, which means everything needs to look scary. So you have to constantly be giving yourself pep talks, and when you feel bad, feel the, feel the feeling. But how I describe it is it just don't linger in it, right? Have the feeling, yeah. obviously, you're mourning something. My father passed away last November. I'm going to mourn that for, for a long time. But but that's different than just sort of constantly woe is me or seeing myself as a victim. That's the worst thing. You can't see yourself as a victim. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Now, one of the things that you do bring up relative, not really relative to that, but sort of adjacent to it that I think, um, I don't think it comes across in the book. I think it comes across the way that you intended, which is, you know, Hollywood relies a lot on the breaks and on what you're yeah. willing to do and stuff. And there are a lot of great yeah. little anecdotes that you give in the book about times that you chose to to do the thing, times that you didn't choose to do the thing, whatever it was, and and all in the name of kind of like trying to find your way towards achieving this dream that you had of I mean cuz honestly that you sort of described in the book am I correct that I mean you want you wanted to be a movie star, right? <laughs> I wanted to be a movie star since you I was a child. I was fascinated yeah. with movie making. I wanted to be kissed and a leading lady, and I wanted to get inside the TV. You know, Andy Kaufman, the great late Andy Kaufman, would call the inside of the TV Dutyville. You know, and I wanted to get inside that place where these pretty people lived, and pretty people got kissed and wore wore nice clothing and drank lovely drinks, and so that's what I went there for. And my mother had a fascination with it, and it was just ingrained in my brain that I wanted that and it you know what and it didn't work out 
and that's okay. I a lot of times I'll say, fail. It's okay. Look, you know, and now they're looking at my book for a movie. Do you know what I'm saying? So I can't tell you how many times I've failed, and I can't tell you how I wouldn't have it any other way because you're going to fail being an accountant maybe or you're going to fail touring the world selling surfboards. You know, then you might as well be doing what you like doing. You know, so, you know, if you, I could have, you know, failed as a jazzercise instructor at a local mall, but, you know, instead I chose to be a writer in Don't Cry For Me, Argentina, because I went from starring in some pretty crummy B films after that with Roger Corman, who's kind of a big deal, but really not making it in the world of of film, of, 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 of acting, but I did get in Screen Actors Guild, I did have top billing in a SAG feature retreads with Michael Rooker from Marvel and had a TV series on the Sci-Fi Network where I interviewed Carl Sagan, toured the country, introducing Gene Roddenberry, which is a classic story where I was on a cruise ship and I asked Gene Roddenberry to stand up and take a bow when he was in a wheelchair. (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty funny. (laughs) Oh, and he stood up and everything was fine. Yeah. (laughs) I'm glad that could have gone a different way. (laughs) I know. Oh, boy. Well, okay, so you said just a little bit ago you you quoted one of the quotes that you do in the book, which is the lyric from from Evita there. So um, you have a lot of song quotes throughout the whole book, and you sort of just whip them out as um, I would would call them flavor quotes for whatever the context is, you know, sometimes it's, um, it's something you're thinking about and you'll just sort of whip one out or you're, or maybe there's something that describes another person that you're whipping out or, you know what I mean? Uh, you use them in really creative well, ways. So it, yeah. Talk a little bit about that. I'm super impressed with how you guys have actually read my book. <laughs> I can't even, <laughs> this is just so great. Not that people haven't, I mean, but, and yet they haven't, you know what I'm saying? So, uh, Oh, you know, Yes, music is a big part of my life. I don't remember the specifics of where I quoted what and where. I think I, I you know, Here Come the Santa Ana Winds Again is in there. Uh, you know, when I lived in the Valley and I was hanging at the comedy store in Los Angeles. You know, but my book is really a stream of consciousness. And for the Star Trek, I mean, it starts out with from Kansas to California, where I make the point, the holy roller point. Oh, please, people, go for your dreams. Don't just immediately get married and make babies and do the normal thing. If you, and if you want to do that, fine, but don't you have choices. And then that goes from, from, from there to San Diego, where I meet Whoopi and then up the coast to LA where I'm getting Star Trek. And, 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 and the whole thing is a roller coaster. It kind of comes at you like a tornado. And then a good third of the book, Star Trek fans are going to love because I talk about Ricardo Montalban at length. I talk about Nicholas Meyer. I talked about being on set. I talked about William, William Shatner. And I, I really gave a lot of my book to the fans. You know, the book was written for, fan, for for the fans. Well, I will say that when I read it, because as you were saying, it's sort of stream of consciousness, you know, I, it felt like we were sitting down and having a cup of coffee and you were just telling me all about <laughs> your life. You know, like it wasn't. Oh, well, that's the biggest compliment you could give me. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It felt really um like familiar, you know, once I, now I will say when I first got started, I was like, what's going on here? This, you know, cause there's not a lot of books that are written like that, but I think it really worked for you to be able to tell the story that you wanted to tell. Thank you. And, and, and I'm getting that a lot that people just feel like I'm, you know, shooting the bull with them. And, and, and it's because <laughs> I am a performer. So sure. my background is a stand-up comic. And I think my, and my other two, two, three books I've written, 
you know, with another woman. Two of the books were with another stand-up comedian. When you're a comic, I think you're writing and you're used to talking to people on stage. As I'm writing, I'm, I'm thinking I'm hearing it. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like, uh-huh. like you're my audience, and if I was a comic, I'm relating to my audience immediately. I'm not. There's no wall there, you know. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So I think comics have an advantage when it comes to the, that kind of writing. Uh-huh. In the comic world, were you uh, mostly a person who would write material, or did you also work on improv type stuff, or? You know, I passed at the two major clubs in New York City, which is one of my other claim to fame: the Comedy Cellar and the Improvisation. Uh, and it took me years to just get a good, strong seven-minute set and do that. And then I became a middle act on the road. Never really appealed to me to do set-up punchline and remember my act as much as it did to connect with people in the audience and find the moment and find the humor that was between us in that moment, which is what Robin did. And I'm really, my first love and passion is improvisation. And we're putting together a show here in Asheville August 31st, which will feature me, and I'm going to be signing autographs, and we're going to have an improv sketch show that I'll be a part of. So I'm still performing improv comedy, and I think everybody should take an improv class because it's just so wonderful for the mind. And stand-up, I don't think I was as talented maybe as I could have been. I kind of, in my book, I talk about sometimes how a woman gives up her career to kind of sideline herself to a relationship or a man, and I repeatedly did that. And at that point in my career in 79, if I had stayed true to my stand-up, you know, I don't know. It could have gone. It could have, I could have been a contender. No, I don't know. I mean, I, <laughs> I, kept, I kept putting relationships before my, my career on a number of occasions, and I'm sort of shocked I'm back touring again and signing autographs with fans. I haven't done it for years. And then I have this book now, and, and it's being considered for something for, for Netflix. So it's like, Wow. You never know. You can't give up ever. I'm not a young person, but you never – you just got to keep going. Well, and you know what's not going to create those opportunities? Negative thoughts or bringing yourself down. And so, you know, you can only possibly create those opportunities if you do the opposite. And I will say my dear friend Bill, William Shatner, who I just – he's the one that got me into these conventions this next – this last round. And I did a nice 30-minute interview of him on my podcast I believe he is the epitome of never stopping and of always be creating, and he calls it the next chapter, always be inventing, reinventing, 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 and then you die. You know what I mean? Like, you're either doing that or you're dead. He is uh-huh. my role model for, for what it is to be alive. Uh-huh. That's awesome. All right, well, before I personally let you go, I got uh, we're going to go lightning round here. So I have three of your favorites that I've pulled from the book. And I would love for you to just give us a little bit of uh, a little bit of flavor on each one of those, if you don't mind. Does that sound like fun? Let's jump in. All right, here we go. Potato chips. Always, forever, blissful, heavenly food. Did, was this always a thing, like when you were a kid too? Oh my gosh, I used to dip them in mayonnaise. I don't know how I'm like not a normal. I love. <laughs> Anything with salt on it, anything to do with dipping like the French do, by the way. And I don't know, it's the crunch. I can't, I, you know, I nosh my teeth at night while I'm sleeping. I think it's that our feeling. And then, of course, the salt, which is so bad for you, but so good. Are all potato chips created equal, or are you like a Lay's gal versus a Ruffles gal, or <laughs> what are you? Oh, gosh, you know, probably just your classic Lay's potato chip. Right on, right on. <laughs> All right, uh, number picking. two. Yeah. <laughs> number two, uh, Chris Pine. 
Somebody get him on the phone for me, please. <laughs> Come on, you know. I dated one Captain Kirk. It's time to date another. He's probably, he's probably into older women. I mean, that man, he just needs to lay down with me. I'm just saying, a little time together, a little conversation with our clothes off. I mean, over coffee where we could look into each other's blue eyes and pass out. Yeah. Kill each other. Pretty much. <laughs> All pass out. Just pass oh out. Oh, my God. I yeah. love it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to manifest him. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, oh, boy. Yeah I'm, yeah, I'm Mrs. Chris Pine. You can just call me Mrs. Pine. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay. Uh, number three, Blade Runner. The all-time favorite movie for me, Sean Young. I worked actually in a movie with her a couple of years ago. She, she needed a stand-in, and uh, I wanted to get back on a movie set, and I, now I'm Sean Young's friend. That movie, Ridley, Ridley Scott, every element of that film for me is magic. The way they see the future, the, the, the emotions, the, the whole robe, you know, android thing, not android thing. Just everything about that movie is, is a very, very good password for me and all my devices. Okay, it's not really. But you know how that is the thing. It's like, what's your movie? You know, it's like, yeah. and I always forget all my other passwords, but that one. Now, that's not really my password, but Blade Runner is a brilliant film. Yeah, I, I couldn't uh, agree with you more. I think that just about everybody on this podcast would absolutely agree with you, and it was it was wonderful to read that in your book. Um, I will say I had no idea that there was a Maxine Headroom possibility before I read your book either. Uh, mm-hmm. I, so that was very yeah. interesting to read about. So many great yeah. stories, so many great anecdotes, so many great, like, little inside information moments. So, uh, and it's mm-hmm. quick. Like mm-hmm. I, I read it relatively quickly, you know, I sat down and read it yeah. over the course of a couple, two or three sittings. So it was nice. Yeah. So. And I think people will, when they've finished that, they'll get a sense of what it feels like to be on a movie set. They'll get mm-hmm. a sense of what it would be like to get the phone call and to be cast. I really wanted the people to walk through my world and, understand the dynamics of when that bell sounds and you're going into the camera and the action and, and how you can't touch anything when you're on a hot set and how they get you off a hot <laughs> set real fast because the court, you know, the, 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 uh, the lady doesn't want you to run off with a prop and then her whole shot's ruined. And so there's like, there's a lot of tension. It's a very nerve wracking environment, but it is the most rarefied atmosphere and thing you'll ever experience in your life is to be on a movie set. It's, well, I'm so I'm so happy that you've been able to experience that because I know from your book that it was a dream of yours, and you've you've done it multiple times. Mm-hmm. And I need to go watch uh, some of your other material as well. So, <laughs> okay, well, good. Thank you so much for yeah. chatting with me, uh, guys. Uh, that is it for my thing. I'm going to toss this over and see if either Paul or uh, or Charles would like to ask more anything. Well, Paul, I'll jump in. There? Or, yep, all right, Charles. Charles, go. go for it, Charles. Okay. Uh, let me start off. I was trying to find your book on Amazon and ran into that, ran into Wrath of Blonde, and then ran into Close, Encon- Close Encounters with Captain <laughs> So yes. what's the difference well. between the two books? Oh, okay. Uh, so, The Close Encounters was the first book title 
that I decided to change the name of. And once you put a book on Amazon, it's there for eternity. So it's a completely, it's the same book with a different title. All right. Since I need to still get around to reading the book, because I had a busy weekend, I'm curious. I okay. It was was it this weekend or the weekend before? We decided we've been trying to get through watching the Star Trek movies, and our XO has a 4K screen. So what were we just watching? The Wrath of Khan. Nice. So it was like, you know, and to see it, and to see it on the big screen on 4K, just, it's an impressive director's cut. Well, yes, that must have been impressive. You know, many consider it to be the, the best of the series, and, and many will even put it at the top for sci-fi films of all time. I, there was, again, magic, karma, energy, you know, Nicholas Meyer was brilliant, brilliant as a director. He worked very intuitively with Ricardo. Ricardo begged for direction, and, and Nicholas was, at the beginning, just gave him the note to pull it back in a little bit and have it be more of a seething. And, and I watched him interact. Like my, and being near Ricardo the whole time and working with him, most of the time he was on set because he's only in the movie 18 minutes, and I was with him on the bridge as, as the navigator of the Reliant the entire time. And uh, he was in pain all the time. You know, he had fallen off a horse in the 50s in a film, and they'd yell cut, and he would just, re- you know, roll over in agony, and then we'd yell action, and he'd be up again. And it just, the work ethic was amazing. He always stayed in character. You know, it, it was a very important role for him, and so I didn't get to converse with him, although he was very much a gentleman, very pleasant to be with. But the moment he chose to took off the second, there was two gloves, and I watched him. He slowly took off one of the gloves. And Nick Meyer was watching him, and I was watching him. As an actor, I was studying him. And, and it was, he wanted, I think he wanted to show his hand. He wanted to show his flesh. Mm-hmm. He wanted to show his humanity. And, and there was this mm, very tactile experience of those gloves. And that's a great example of a good actor who finds a prop, right, and, and puts himself into that. Uh, but, but Ricardo Montalban, I think, is one of the greatest villains of all time as Khan. Yes. In fact, I think they did a unique perspective of Khan between Ricardo Montavon and uh, the Kelvin universe. Benedict Cumberbatch. Uh, Cumberbatch. 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 Yeah, he, he, yeah. Did he did an intellect Khan instead of the strong Khan. I thought it was an interesting perspective of what the Khan, who Khan is. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, we were super genetically engineered, and by God, they got that right, because I'm super genetically engineered in real life, too, guys. So <laughs> that was just brilliant passing <laughs> on all our parts. Actually, all, all, of the people, all of the people in the Reliant and his crew that had been left on Teddy Alpha 5 for dead, thank you very much. Uh, the guys had to be over 6'1", and the women had to be over 5'10", and at the time I was 5'11". So we were just these enormous people, and uh, every day they kept eliminating some of the cast members to, to go home and thank you and go home, and until it got down to me and Nancy Rogers and a few of the guys. 
And uh, I knew that was starting to get pretty thrilling when they, they said, all right, Laura Banks, we need you on set, and I'm following the second AD. And they and we get on the bridge, and now I know I really now really get what's happening, right? I'm like, oh, my God. And then he points to the navigator seat, and he's like, have a seat. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I sit down at the navigator seat, and I'm petrified. I'm like, the camera is enormous. It's right in my face, you know. I couldn't breathe, you know, and I have one line, course plot to intercept Enterprise, ready, sir. Now, that line, because of the budget, was not given to me. And I remember the day they were trying to figure it out if they could afford to give me the line, but they were so cutting corners, so tight. But, it, it, you know, I was a navigator, and the script had said navigator, and there was the line, and they did it in voiceover. So that really was me, um, you know, and then we didn't get credit, and, and uh, Joaquin didn't get credit either it was kind of some odd things around all of that that i'm not thrilled with but you know it went on to be just to be a part of the star trek family is more than worth any of it well it was great that you were able to make it to set well your book's on order on amazon for kindle yeah. um any other movies that really were memorable that were special to you that you did? Uh, absolutely not. No, really. Um, no. Well, so uh, <laughs> let's put it this way. I'm more proud of my, my, my authoring and becoming a USA Today bestselling author. I, my second book sold a quarter of a million copies. It was a humor book on dating. So my humor love kept coming through my writing, embracing your big fat ass and owner's manual. Like That's who I am, right? And then I've had a particular look, and I'm a decent actress, to have gotten a few other action pictures. Now, I don't make a movie without the word action in it, apparently. Action adventure, action comedy, action horror, and an action horror, Demon of Paradise, I was eaten by a monster. I guess I guess we can just leave it at that. You know, I, I enjoyed <laughs> being eaten by a monster because the night that it happened, we were shooting in the Philippines, a Roger Corman film, and, of course, as you know, Corman discovered Nicholson and Coppola and Shatner and Ron Howard. I mean, he's famous for giving people their start. Uh I imagined all the actresses before me, like Faye Ray and Godzilla, you know, like I'm putting on my eye makeup and I'm ready to jump in the hole. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, all these other famous actresses that were devoured by monsters. And now I'm making it into the that world of of uh, Guinness whatevers, you know. Sounds like a lot of fun. Well, let me pass over to Paul and see what Paul can see what kind of question Paul has. All right. Thanks, Charles. Mrs. Chris Pine, it is a delight to finally get to meet you. This is Chris. Chris, where are you? Come to me. <laughs> I know that he keeps you very busy, and it's difficult to uh, get out of the house, right? You know, when you're married yes, to uh, Chris like Pine, what are you going to do? No, nothing like an imaginary boyfriend to keep you from getting out of bed in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. We understand here at Track Talking, so don't worry. Yeah. But uh, it is great to yeah. get a chance to, to meet you, Laura Banks, and thanks Thank for making you. time to, to chat with us crazy people here today. Now, don't hold it against me, but embarrassingly, I have not been able to read this book this week. I was planning to, but things got crazy, as they tend what? to do in the world. I don't forgive you. Just How crazy. It's, it's embarrassing. But talking to these other knuckleheads that we work with here, it kind of feels like I already have. I mean, there's so much stuff that they've shared about the different uh, things that are on here. But I, I want to ask you, right? I mean, at this point, uh, I know that it's, it's memory, sir. 
Voyager, first Star Trek came out, it wasn't like a colossal, super big hit. I, a lot of people felt that it like, you know, kind of missed the mark. It was different. It was, some people would say it was dull, right? And so here you are making a sequel that in a lot of ways is like kind of rebooting everything, right? And now, as we've all been saying, it's like this is movies considered like one of the great sci-fi classics. I mean, I think just about everybody will tell you, oh, yeah, best Star Trek movie ever. I mean, it's really rare that somebody will get cantankerous about it, but a lot of people really think that it is. So when you're making the movie at the time, did you have a sense that, wow, we're part of something that's going to really change things? Or how did it feel just at the moment in terms of what you what it felt like it was going to turn into? Was there a sense that it was going to be something special? Or, or Tell me what that felt like. Well, Paul, I, I knew I was in the face of excellence as far as acting, having studied acting since my mid-teens and witnessing Ricardo. So I knew there was something stunning going on here with his work. And as a craftsman and an artist, that, that, that piece was quite clear. I had no idea it was going to become to be one of the best sci-fi's in many people's books, uh, Star Trek World and Beyond. No, I had I had no idea. You know, you know, you're you're just in survival mode up there. You know, I report to work about six in the morning. You know, I wouldn't get into makeup because there was no makeup. They put dirt in my face, and then Nancy and I would sneak some makeup on. But we had a trailer, and we just, it goes from boring to thrilling. Like one minute you're you know you're sitting in the trailer, six hours later you're still sitting in your trailer, and then you finally get a call to go on set, and then everything speeds up, time speeds up, everybody's on purpose, everybody's got to get the shot. You've got fire marshals on set, you've got stunt doubles that are reviewing the situation, you're given your marks, and you've got to hit them. You're just petrified. So mostly you're, you know, and Penelope Cruz, I quote her in my book saying the same thing, you know, what's it like being on a movie set? She said it's frightening. And there's just so much at stake, you know, and, you know, they shoot a minute of film a day, obviously, and so there's just, oh, gosh, they don't get the shot, you know, it could set, you could lose the, which Nicholas Meyer was always worried that he was going to lose the backing of the studios because they were worried about the budget. So he was always hated it. He told me, and he said to all of us, you know, this is this awful, um, uh, happy birthday, by the way, Deb, is it your birthday? <laughs> yes, it, yes, it is. Thank you so much. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Mr. President. No, so Nicholas Meyer's birthday was on set also, and we had a big cake, and there was like moments of brevity and moments of boredom and moments of absolute panic. So de- describing making a major motion picture at 20-something, is that's just about sums it up, and I had no idea that it, what it was. Wow. And look at, look at the enduring legacy that, it, that you're a part of pretty amazing yes you make it sound like nicholas meyer was a good dude like a a good guy to work with extremely good dude a very thoughtful director very intuitive i I felt that ricardo and and nicholas were always working together to find a moment uh i wanted in the inner circle i wanted him to look at me and give me direction and i later i had a chance we were hanging out i went thank you nick for you know putting me in this role I guess I had the look, you know, you needed and wanted. He goes, no, it was your acting. He goes, yeah, but it was your acting. And I was like, what are you talking about? He goes, I watched you. He goes, when there was a scene, you know, and in my book, I really, I do talk about creating an inner life and a dialogue for yourself, even if your background, because you never know who's looking through the lens and what they're seeing. 
And other projects I haven't talked about, like I worked on a film with Woody Allen, Radio Days, and same thing, I kept getting moved forward in that, and and, and a movie with uh, Shelley Long and Bette Midler, I got all the way to the front. You know, if, if most extras treat it as just like you work at a deli and you go home. Then, and, and, and then there are actors who are extras, and they don't stay extras very long. I was, I was, I was in, in more than a few films as an extra, whereas... But it, it, you learn so much, but you've always got to be emoting when that camera's going. You never know. You just never do. I mean, it's, you know, the, the, the great writer, William Goldman, his famous quote, right? And nobody knows anything. You can't really predict a thing <laughs> as far as what's going to happen, so, which is which Yeah, is and I mean, and the highlight of my life at one point was, of course, going to the theaters and seeing myself enormous on the screen in these fight sequences and then having my stunt double come out. And in The Wrath of Blonde, I talk about how I didn't want to be a stunt double and how they made me stunt doubles in some of my other movies. I almost barely survived. But in 1982, I was in Time Magazine. You know, this picture of me with Ricardo and Nancy became the poster for the film. It, you know, and it was on the poster for a, a while. Uh, and, and that that really, uh, I mean, I, when I called my home family back in Kansas City, I went, you know, I'm in Time Magazine. You know, I, I, you, you can bet my mother ran to the store and bought the magazine. <laughs> What mom wouldn't? Come on, that's great. That's fantastic. But yeah. uh, now, one section thing I've I've heard this mentioned from the guys and from people talking about the book. It's in, but I don't know the details. I don't know if you can talk about them. It's too traumatic or whatnot. But but it sounds like there was a picture you were shooting overseas. I think it was like one of the Roger Corman movies, and there was like a near fatal experience or something like this. Are, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite classic films of all time is a movie called Stuntman with Peter O'Toole. And it's a story of a guy on the lamb who gets put in a movie and they use him as a stunt double. And he can't leave the movie because he's hiding out from the law. And that's almost like it felt like for me. Uh, there's, a mo- there's a number of times in The Wheels of Fire, which you can watch now on um, Prime. It's awful film, though. But... Uh, <laughs> I have a good role. I have a lead role. I'm leading armies in the battle. Well, in this scene, I was leading a real Filipino army in the battle. Now, this was a real Filipino army. I had lunch with a little general who explained that they were using a real Filipino army. Well, in the shot where the director's a half a mile away hiding behind a rock sipping lattes, I'm jumping out of an armored personnel carrier yelling, men this way, dressed in leather, carrying a machine gun. Well, they all decided to fire off their guns. And I didn't know what was happening. Uh, they were shooting up into the air, and I found out later they were getting rid of ammunition that was in their guns so they could order new ammunition. So they were shooting off real ammunition. <laughs> and I was in the shell, I was in shell shock at the Manila Intercontinental Hotel for like three days, crying like a, Dis- like a lost Disney character. It was awful. I was, I was literally, I know what shell shock is. That's what happened. And then, you know, another time they light a bridge that I'm running across and it's on fire and, I kind of barely make it across. And then they're all kind of giggling. You know, I say in the book, you know, what are the qualifiers to star in action pictures overseas? You know, be somewhat photogenic, but be willing to be completely humiliated and laughed at by a crew who's getting their rocks off watching you, like, freak out when the ground shakes. You know, I should have read the script a little closer. <laughs> and they figured, oh, she does her own stunts. She can handle it. It's going to be fine. Yeah. So. 
Wow. Maybe that's why wow. the writer now is safe, it's quiet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's like, I don't think I want to have one of these Alec Baldwin set experiences. That's not for me. Oh. I don't think so. So. No, no. Not at all. Not at all. Well, there's some great stories, my friend. This is this is awesome. Mm. Um, so not that there's any of us on the show who uh, also have like literary aspirations or stuff, like not even remotely. But if there were, what advice would you give folks who are talking to literary agents as a writer who's been very successful? What, what advice would you give somebody? This is I love sharing this story. And it's my mother used to say, I make doors where there are none. Now, I come from a very difficult childhood. There was a lot of dysfunction. I lost a brother to suicide. I had n- nothing in my favor to make this. still have down days. I still struggle. Uh, but I, I, when I get focused on something and I can share with everyone if, if they want the magic, and the magic goes like this. I couldn't get an agent on my first book, Love Online, which was way ahead of its time about online dating. And uh decided, all right, well, I'm going to be an author anyway. So I really poorly produced a self-published book it was awful the double stitching was crooked and the letters were falling off the page but then i called myself an author and then i got local publicity so anybody can do that you start going you build up your war chest of interviews and publicity and then i made my way on national television with this book of all things and then i took that reel of appearances and press to an agent and then they wanted to sign me i guess now the definition of that would be what's your platform or how many people are following you or you know then you know like I just found a young girl here in Asheville who works on creating viral videos that go from 14 to 1 million find someone who can do that for you you know that would be today's thing you gotta you know if build it enough I would think with a podcast with a hundred you know the hundreds of thousands of listeners you have that is definitely a credit that should get the attention of, of a literary agency, but mostly it's getting get, engaging in the, with the general public and them starting to notice you and then taking that reel of appearances or that press kit or that uh, a social media reach out that's, that's sticking to a literary agent. Well, that's fantastic advice, Laura. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. That's great. May sure. advice we should all be listening to and paying attention to. So, but uh, this has been a great chance to chat with you. I just want to make sure you said earlier. I, I, I at one point you were talking about when you made Wrath of Khan. You said I used to be five eleven. Used to be five eleven. Well, I mean, you okay? Kind of. Sh- well, I'm sitting down. No, I shrunk a little. I, <laughs> I'm like. <laughs> Did that happen? That's not an urban it legend. Does. That really does. It does. Okay. I am five. I am five five nine now. Unfortunately, I don't know. Somebody stole the two inches in the middle of the night or something. I don't know what happened. Oh, I don't know. I, or big big shoes or something like that. But uh, that's something. Still but when I put shoes on, I'm friend. still five ten. But yeah, five eleven <laughs> was pretty tall for back then. And it's and I know I got booked in T.J. Hooker. You know, uh, got in Screen Actors Guild because of my height. The idea was Screen Actors Guild will let you in if they've looked inside the guild and they cannot cast it. So, and I think William Shatner got me that role on TJ Hooker, but on, I, when I asked him that on my podcast, he said, I'll never tell. I'm like, okay. <laughs> anyway, uh, thanks for getting me in Screen Actors Guild. But, you know, the height has been a problem in my career because, you know, leading men are shorter sometimes. No, don't tell Tom Cruise that. So. <laughs> <laughs> Chris Pine. Well, Chris Pine. <laughs> we'll tell the, we'll tell Chris Pine to go take care of it. I'm, I'm, I'm sure he'll be oh, 
Well, listen, thanks for being such a fantastic guest and uh, oh, for yeah. writing such a cool book. I'm excited to finally get a chance to read it. And uh, I, I suspect a lot of other people will be getting your book uh, as well. I, I want to be mindful of not hogging your time. I'm passing it back to Uncle Jim. Thanks for chatting with us, Laura. You bet. All right, Laura. Well, uh, you've heard from all of us. We've all had a chance to talk to you, and we really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to come on the show and talk with us. We're, we're great fans, and we really appreciate it. So thank you so much. Oh, well, you're welcome, and I'll take my tip from William Shatner, which is shameless self-promotion. The book is The Wrath of Blonde. It is on Amazon, uh, and uh, buy 30, 40, 50 copies and give them away to, to everybody who works in Walmart. There's a plan right there. Well, I'm hoping, I'm hoping and hoping that they can find a way to get you up to Treconderoga in August. Uh-huh. Because then yeah. I can have you sign a copy of the book for me because I will be there. Oh, <laughs> oh I would love hoping. that. You know, I, you know uh, I have, and laurabanks.com is my website, laurabanks.com. Under tour, I'm in, you know, Austin, Atlanta, Raleigh, GalaxyCon, Columbus GalaxyCon, Las Vegas Creation Entertainment. So I'm all over the place. Jim, just make it out to one of these other towns. I'll have to do that. I'll have to do that. <laughs> so, anyways, I just wanted to say your book. I I really enjoyed your book. Uh, like Eric Thank said you. earlier, it was a quick, quick, very quick, very easy read. Uh, because the chapters are so short, uh, and the quotes, you can you can fly through it real quick. It's really great. Right, but and they I do wanna, say wanna, that, that the reviewers are saying that it's also very packed to wallop. It's not a breezy read. It's more like a tornado. Do you know what I mean? It's like and, while it's while it's a street, it's it's a dense. There's a lot that happens, right? And something that I wanted to I wanted to mention so that kind of wet the the uh, appetite of the listeners to buy the book. But there's there's quite a few pages, maybe a chapter or two about your involvement with a certain captain who's not named Pike, who's not named Pine in the book. And, uh, uh-huh. yeah. yeah, and if, if the uh-huh. listeners want to find out about that, they're going to have to buy the book and read it for themselves. Yeah, they're going to have to, they're going to, have to buy the book to read about any captains that may have been in my past. Yes. And uh, there's there's quite a bit in there about one particular captain who's not named Pine, and it's <laughs> it's a great read. <laughs> so uh, thank you so much, Laura, for coming on on Trek Talk and thank talking you. with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Good night. Bye bye. Good night. Bye. All right, guys. Bye everybody. All right. That- that was Laura Banks, uh, the author of Great The Wrath She's so of fun. God. Yeah. Isn't she awesome? Yeah. She that was, was fun. And you know what? It's all your fault, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Blaming me. Is that the strategy? <laughs> yep, yep. You, you sent me the link. I didn't even know that she had a book out, and you sent me the link, and I tracked her down, and here we are. It was, You know, it, was that, well, it happened it, that easy. You work fast, Jim. You work fast. 
but you know, it's a it's a really catchy title. I mean, it's it's you know, I can yeah, it's it's one of the our titles are strong animals, right? You got a good title, I think it's going to get a lot of attention. It's repeatable, and it's a terrific title. She's really good at that. So um, it, it's it sounds like it's uh, a lot more going on. Uh, than what might at first blush sound like it's, you know, uh, a tell-all or something. It's That's to get your attention, I think. But she's got, like, a whole career of really interesting stories in all different strata of Hollywood, which is cool. So really great that she came on. Good work, dude. A lot of great stuff. A lot of great stuff. And it's, it's my birthday, too. Did I mention that? Woo! <laughs> yeah. Laura Banks wished me a happy birthday and saying happy birthday to me. What more could you ask for? What more could you ask for? I'll tell you right now. Star Trek birthdays. That was not a Klingon song. All right, we always do our Star Trek birthdays by starting off with those members of our Star Trek family who, sadly enough, are no longer with us. And for that, we turn to Eric. Yeah, Jim, tonight we're going to be remembering three members of our Star Trek community who have gone before us. The first is actor Kevin Conway. And uh, Kevin Conway lost just three years ago, last uh, February 2020. He was the actor who played Kalos in the Next Generation sixth season episode, Rightful Heir. Um, you know, interestingly, Kevin didn't start his acting career until he was 24 years old. Uh, he had worked up until that time as an IBM sales analyst uh, and then decided that he wanted to start pursuing career, and thank goodness. Uh, in 1980, he actually starred as Dr. William Haber alongside Bruce Davidson in the made-for-television movie adaptation of Ursula K. Le Guin's science fiction work, The Lathe of Heaven. Fantastic book if you have not read that. And I think I'll have to check out that made-for-TV movie if I can find it. Conway appeared as himself and the Earl of Hastings in Al Pacino's 1996 documentary, Looking for Richard. Um, He was an actor. He did some directing. Uh, One thing that I didn't know before doing my research was that he actually turned down the role of Theoden in the Lord of the Rings movies. Uh, so that he could reprise the role of Buster Kilrain in Gods and Generals from 2003. Uh, Of course, we all now know that Bernard Hill got that role instead. And Conway had a recurring role as Seamus O'Reilly in the HBO series Oz, and also provided the control voice for the 1995-2002 to revival of Outer Limits. So Kevin Conway... Kalos, the unforgettable, um, so cool to have you as part of the Star Trek community. Uh, we miss you. Thank you for your contributions in Rightful Air and for being one heck of a Klingon. Happy birthday. Happy birthday as well to actress Ivy Batune. Uh, she was the actress who, have pl- of course, played Duana in the TNG first season episode, When the Bow Breaks. She was originally born Ivy Vigdor in a Russian Jewish family in Sevastopol, Crimea. Um, she definitely is probably best known for her role as Ma Peabody in 1985's hit time travel film, Back to the Future, a little ditty you might have heard of. She was also well known for her regular role as Miss Tuttle in the 1981 Western series, Father Murphy. Uh, in 87, she had a recurring role on General Hospital. Uh, definitely worked in television, but also did a lot of theater work uh, in her in her day. 
um, playing several different roles in several different theaters along the way. You can see her guest starring in television episodes of Outer Limits, Perry Mason, Mannix, Little House on the Prairie, and The Waltons. And one of the coolest things about Ivy, I think, is she was only the eighth Star Trek performer to reach the age of 100. That's right, Ivy. We lost her back in 2019 at the ripe old age of 101 years old. So uh, happy birthday and lots of love and remembrances going out to Ivy Bethune. And our last remembrance this week goes out to one that still I can't believe was back in 2019, four years ago already. Uh, back then we lost uh, probably one of the most influential actors from, DF, uh, from Deep Space Nine that I can think of. Uh, Rene Abergenois, uh, age 79 years old, was lost uh, December 2019. He, of course, was known as playing Chief Security Odo on Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Lots and lots of episodes under his belt. He also uh, directed a couple of episodes of Deep Space Nine along the way and did a little bit of other directing uh, of a television show called Marblehead as well. In Star Trek, he also was known as Colonel West in Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, although his scenes were initially cut from the film's theatrical release. You, of course, can now enjoy them uh, on your DVD and 4K releases. In addition, he made a guest appearance as Ezrael in the Star Trek Enterprise first season episode, Oasis. That was really fun to see him in that. Um, Abergenois was also considered uh, as a possible doctor for Star Trek Voyager, which uh, is kind of interesting. I didn't really know that before today. And he's not just a Star Trek guy, right? I mean, he actually had a huge career as a Broadway stage actor back in the 1960s, uh, began with a revival of William Shakespeare's King Lear that he was in, and it uh, just sort of catapulted his career. And by 1970, he was winning Tony Awards uh, for his portrayal of Sebastian Bay in Coco, um, he then moved on to television and was, of course, Emmy uh, Award nominated for his role as the snooty Clayton Endicott III on Benson. Um, after Benson, he guest starred in a couple of episodes of The Practice. And then between 2004 and 2008, he appeared alongside William Shatner in Boston Legal. Uh, he was the managing partner of the law firm Crane, Poole and Schmidt for three seasons. Uh, in film, uh, one of his earliest roles was as Father Mulcahy in Altman's original 1970 classic, MASH. That's the movie before the television series. And at that same time, he also appeared in Brewster McCloud. Um, he did voiceover work. He did video games. Just a really, really super talented actor. And uh, he was fun to listen to at cons as well. So uh, I will just say that we absolutely miss Rene Evergenois. Thank you so much for your contributions. Happy birthday uh, to you. And uh, that, you guys, does it for our remembrances this week. So I'm going to pass this birthday candle over to Charles. Oh, thank you, Eric. Uh, let's start off with Michael Ann Sissy. Who appeared as a Ferengi toll in Star Trek Next Generation 7 Season 7. Seven seven season episode Bloodlines. Interesting that he's worked with. It's interesting his past careers. 
He's worked with the early renditions of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the live-action movies, was a puppeteer who did a long, a long stint in the TV show Dinosaurs. And from what I could tell, probably led him to being one of the, one of the puppeteers for Muppets. He looks like he's done quite a bit with a lot of the Muppet stuff they've done, which looks like a lot of fun. Happy birthday to Terrence E. McNally, who played the uh, Retarda in Star Trek Next Generation 4 season episode Half-Life, who worked mainly in the 70s and 90s. Appeared in movies like Nine to Five, Earth Girls Are Easy, and several soap operas and comedies. Jacob Kogan, American actor of Russian Jewish ancestry, who played the young Spock in 2009 film Star Trek. Chris Follett. Canadian actor who played transporter officer Birch Welton in Star Trek's Discovery first season episode of Vulcan Hello and a Battle of the Binary Stars, as well as his mirror universe counterpart in Despite Yourself and The Wolf Inside. He's also well known for Power Rangers SPD. And the final one. One of my favorites on here. Happy birthday to Leah Thompson. Actress and director who directed the Star Trek Picard second season episodes, Assimilate and Watcher. She also played Diane Werner in the episodes Fly Me the Moon. Her first movie, this was interesting, was Jaws 3D. Also made fame in films like Howard the Duck, Red Dawn, and her first major uh, directorial debut was an episode Goldberg. And my co-hosts want to comment about Leah Thompson. Oh, wow, she's amazing. And she was actually just in Portland. She was at the Fan Expo last June, was it, I think? Um, I did see her from afar, but I did not wait for an autograph, but yeah, she's, she's something else, and I had no idea, honestly, that she was a director until that episode of Picard came out, and so that was a nice little education point for me. Definitely. And, and, and who could not love Howard the Duck? Come on, it's a I, You know, guys, exactly. guys, I am a huge Howard the Duck fan. I really am. I love the movies. I love the comics. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> no problems there for me. <laughs> But I just thought it was funny that her first movie, her first real movie was Jaws 3D. It's like, okay, interesting spot to start to start off your career. A very big happy birthday to her. So with that, Paul, who's on your list? All right there, friends and neighbors. Well, we got all kinds of good folks here this week like to wish a very happy birthday to the legendary, absolutely enchanting Lee Merriweather, 
who we are acknowledging on the realm of Star Trek from her original series appearance in the third season episode as Lucera in That Which Survives. And I think you know the one I'm talking about, right? Where this is a being that somehow is able to minimize herself into a, a vertical line, but boy, if she comes toward you, <laughs> I am for you, Mr. Sulu. <laughs> Don't let her touch you because every atom in your body is going to basically be short-circuited. So she was, you know, an alluring yet uh, extremely frightening uh, character who sort of appears as a phantom in that episode. But she's very compelling, uh, definitely able to sell it, which should be no surprise, because uh, uh, Lee Merriweather is just had been in everything. I mean, she's been so many different things, right? She's one of the great claims to fame in 1966 uh, when they did the uh, Adam West Batman movie. Uh, she was Catwoman in that particular movie with all of the other original series uh, bands. She was on Barnaby Jones. I mean, there's just a ton of different shows that she was in, especially if you're an old school 60s sci-fi fan, you're going to remember Land of the Giants, you're going to remember Irwin Allen's Time Tunnel, where she did like at least 30 episodes of that episode of that series. She's just worked a ton, right? Absolutely a remarkable person who's done a lot of great stuff and is still out there. Uh, absolutely wonderful. So uh, here's hoisting our birthday cake to you. Lee Merriweather, uh, you are a class act with a capital C. So absolutely great to be able to uh, remind folks that you're part of the Star Trek universe. Birthday greetings also go out to actress Julie Cobb, who played yeoman Leslie Thompson in the original series second season episode by any other name. Great episode. Really terrific. I don't think that uh, yeoman Thompson had a great end. Uh, I think she was one of the ones who... Uh, Got uh, decorporealized de in a not-so-great way, as I recall. But uh, hopefully you're out there rocking and rolling and have a great birthday, Julie Cobb. So great to acknowledge you. Happy birthday also goes out to Maureen Thornton, together with her twin sister, Colleen, appeared as the Barbara series androids in the original series. <laughs> the second season episode, I Mud. There were tons and tons of twins that appeared together in that uh, classic episode there, the Barbara series being one of the most memorable. So Maureen Thornton, Sister Colleen, happy birthday to you. And we'd also like to wish birthday greetings to British actor Mark A. Shepard, who played uh, Lucan in the Voyager 6 season episode, Child's Play. And rounding things out for me, uh, getting a little more contemporary with our Star Trek acknowledgments, Sir, and happy birthday. You played Vasa in the Strange New Worlds first season episode, Spock Amok. Will we be seeing him again? I don't know, but we'll be getting more Strange New Worlds episodes in just a couple of very short weeks. That's it for my birthday roster. Let's go back over to Uncle Jim. Well, I've got a couple here. Uh, a really good one at the end. No Klingons, but I do have a Romulan, so Let's dive right in. First, I want to say happy birthday to Jack McBrayer, the American actor, singer, and comedian who voiced Badgie in Star Trek Lower Decks episode Terminal Provocation and No Small Art. Who doesn't love Badgie? Come on. Badgie is scary and the absolute definition, newest definition of um, of freaky AI from Star Trek. 
makes the Terminators look good. <laughs> yeah, and uh, we also want to say happy birthday to Al Rodrigo, who played Bernardo Calvera, DS9, third season episode, Past Tense Part 1 and Past Tense Part 2. He also voiced Captain Durango. <laughs> In Star Trek Lower Decks episodes, The Moist Vessel and The Stars at Night. We want to say happy birthday to Melissa Young, who played Captain Caprice. Uh, I'm sorry. <coughs> who played Caprice in the DS9 fourth season episode, Our Man Bashir. That's a classic. That, that's a great episode, Our Man Bashir. And speaking of Bashir, what good would our man Bashir be without his man, Steve O'Brien? We want to say happy <laughs> birthday to Colm Meany, the Irish actor best recognized to Star Trek fans as Chief Miles O'Brien on TNG and Deep Space Nine. He was Dr. Mashir's bro, his man crush. They hung out together all the time. So happy birthday to Colm Meany. Well, and don't forget, Jim, uh, now these days, I think Lower Decks has cemented in canon that uh, I believe Chief O'Brien is the most important man in Starfleet, correct? Yes, he even has a statue. Yeah, yeah, big one. <laughs> yeah, we we don't know why, but he has it. So. <laughs> I mean, what can the, what can Chief O'Brien not do? That's the question. He's he's like he's like I would put him up against Jordy, man. He's he's pretty. He's got ways. He's got ways of speaking with machines. Well, he learned from Jordy. Well, he did. That's true. Yeah. Who apparently learned from Enterprise. Data. I don't know. That's what Picard taught me. <laughs> you know, I got to tell you a quick story about Cole Meany. He was at a Star Trek convention in Albany. We went to see him. I got his, his autograph on my TNG poster. And during his Q&A, if you remember, he never had a name. He was just Chief O'Brien, Chief O'Brien, Chief O'Brien. He didn't actually have a name. And he shows up at the convention, and uh, he tells us a story that now he has a name. His name is actually Miles O'Brien. And he was pretty excited because he told us that once your character gets a first name, then you got it made and you're not going anywhere. And he was right because not only did he laugh TNG, but he moved over to become a regular on DS9. So having a full name is very important if you're going to be on Star Trek. And the last, the last name that I have on my list is awesome for me, and I'm really excited about this one. Um, not a Klingon, but she was a Romulan in, in and arguably the best Star Trek movie ever made, ever, ever. In fact, my panel at Trek Long Island was sold out for people to come and talk about Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. And we want to say happy birthday to Cynthia Gao, the Chinese-American actress and model who played Caitlin Dar in Star Trek V. And that, my friends, wraps up our Star Trek birthdays. We are going to be back this section that we used to do all the time called Star Trek News. And I've altered it a little bit, shortened it quite a bit so we can fit it into the show. Um, But I think you're going to like it anyways. 
All the stories that we're about to talk about, as short as they are, can be found in their entirety and unedited on our Facebook page. So without further ado, we must do this. Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. Incoming transmission. Enter authorization code. Command codes verified. Define parameters of program. Level nine authorization required. Specify parameters. Transfer of data is complete. Okay, welcome to Star Trek News, and Charles gets our first story of the night. Yes, and I'm ex- I am definitely interested in this one. Lower Decks, new Lower Decks book on the way. Star Trek Lower Decks crew handbook, a funny and illustrated guide on the life on the USS Doritos with Star Trek Lower Decks. The eyes of the beloved Lower Decks decorate themselves. Join the crew of the USS Cerritos as they look, as they seek out new travel, life and travel. Ah, talking is difficult today. Where people may or may not have been before. Boimler and all his friends offer advice and insider knowledge to new crew members. This hilarious and informative handbook will help you come to grips with the ship, the do, your duties, and your fellow Lower Deckers, especially as they generously left comments throughout Star Trek Lower Decks, True Handbook by Chris Farrell, available October 24th, the hardcover from Titan Books. Definitely want to get that book on hardcover and have it in my collection. Sounds like fun. Uh, just a Lower Decks handbook that it sounds like you're – you're sort of drawn into it that you're a crew member. Is that what I'm getting here? And yeah, you're kind that's of like just what it yeah. like. Yeah. The, what's what's yeah. it like being on the ship from a lower decker? Yeah, it's thing like Rob Perlman would have wrote when he wrote the Book of Grudge, right? Type of a thing. <laughs> yeah. Where it's uh, oh, by the way, uh, Rob Perlman was at Trek Long Island, and. Uh, uh, David Ajala was also there, and he spent an awful lot of time talking about the cat, Grudge, from, from uh, Discovery. <laughs> and Ron Perlman actually came up on stage and said, you know, Grudge is definitely a queen, for sure, mm-hmm. and that she's a diva. And it, I started laughing because if you read the book, the, the book of Grudge, you would know. That was hilarious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think this book is going to be the same thing. I think this is going to be like, uh, you know, like the lower deckers themselves writing the book. I, I mm-hmm. think, anyways. Mm-hmm. Okay, and just by the way, you may get the twenty-first on this list. I see Amazon's predicting a release on the seventeenth, which usually is a Tuesday release, which is about right. All All right, right. so we're going to turn it over to Paul. All right, that sounds like a good book there, uh, Charles. I'm excited to check it out myself. Well, I've got a little Strange New Worlds news here from the production uh, chief here. Our showrunner confirms that this should come as no surprise that the Writers Guild of America strike has delayed season three start of production. Uh, most folks realize that the WGA West Writers Guild of America is on strike that began about three weeks ago. Uh, 
and sadly does not show any sign of being resolved anytime soon. Uh, estimates are probably it could continue through all summer and could end up being joined by other guild strikes throughout the industry. Um, what's really cool is a number of Star Trek writers past and present have assembled and done like a Trek themed picketing at Paramount out in Hollywood there. Um, go online and take a look and you'll see that a huge percentage of the, the cast of recent shows have been out there uh, joining in and supporting the writers. Season two of Strange New Worlds, of course, arrives in just heartbeats away on Paramount Plus on June 15th. Now, uh, what's cool is Paramount Plus could have gone through and started production with any of the scripts they had considered finished, but it appears that what they want to wait for the strike to end. Okay, and a factor for that could be that the Actors Guild or SAG AFTRA might also be going on strike too if they cannot come up with a new contract uh, that ends at the end of this very month on June 30th. So it's very cool that uh, I think that so much of the Star Trek industry is supporting this. Uh, often get the shaft in Hollywood. And there would be no shows. There would be no storytelling without them. And it becomes... Uh, evident that you have to stand up for your rights, especially when uh, things are getting messed around and changed so much in the fast-moving world that now incorporates things like streaming, uh, contracts, and remuneration has to uh, evolve as these new platforms do. So it's great. Uh, uh, labor is an important thing to support. I think that anybody uh, in the Star Trek ethos would agree with that. Uh, we've seen numerous episodes that uh, support that and uh, I hope it gets resolved soon and I hope that all the writers and actors are able to continue to make a really good living and be re justly rewarded for their creativity um, let me pass things over to Uncle Jim yeah thank you so much and I, I do want to say that the if you go online there was a vast majority of Star Trek actors uh, from all the different shows that were there in support of the writers and that's because um I was talking with Leslie Hoffman earlier about it, and the Screen Actors Guild contract is coming up as well. And apparently the, the actors have a conflict with the way streaming pays residuals versus the way residuals were paid in the past. So uh, depending on what happens with the, with the writers, I think the same thing might be expected from the actors as well. So we'll have to wait and see how that all pans out. But it is great to see some solidarity for sure. All right. Yeah, and, and Jim, we were we I think we mentioned last week when we talked about it that it's it's all about right now that the technology has outpaced the contracts, right? So shows are coming out in entirely different ways than they were coming out five years ago and I don't know when these contracts were negotiated, but um everybody's trying to play catch-up, which is why you're hearing things like, oh, the actors probably will follow the writers because everybody needs to play catch-up. Yeah, this is, this is a whole new um, area that didn't exist before. So mm. it's going to be to see how they handle it. Mm -hmm. And, and i got to say, as a fan, um, 10 episodes is just is, doesn't seem like enough to me. Um, yeah, you know, I mean we've um, talked we've talked we've talked about that a little bit too, Jim. I mean, I ten episodes feels pretty darn short to me. I think when they cut it from twenty six to thirteen, we all sort of went into a little bit of shock. But then we said, okay, well, you know, it's it's half the season that it used to be, but they're spending 
more than twice as much on every show, and so the shows are just better, and so maybe it's worth it. But, man, you're right. When they sort of get down into that, like, 8 to 10 um, range, now, you know, if you go with what Patrick Stewart said, Patrick Stewart wanted each season of Picard to be, like, a 10-hour movie, that each episode would, you know, represent an hour of that movie. So I think that if you looked at the the shows that – are putting out 10 episode seasons. And maybe this is just a trend in general. They're all serial shows, right? They're all shows that you have to watch the whole thing. You can't just poke in and watch an episode here and there. You got to start at the beginning and watch the whole thing. So it's just the kind of TV we make. I mean, um, but with with so much time between the seasons, I know you really, this Star Trek thing is killing me where it's like more than a year between seasons is killing me. And then for yeah. ten episodes or whatever, it's hard. Well, it's hard. They're not. All they're not the only ones. They're not the only ones pushing a year. Mm-mm. I got a couple of Star Wars ones that I like, and I got to wait a year between these ep- between these seasons. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, and there's so a schedule timing thing. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say one more thing, which is that there's a schedule timing thing too, right? Because typically, what they're what they have to do or what I'm seeing seems to be a trend. I'm no expert, trust me. But what I'm seeing is that they make a season, they wait to see how successful that season is, then they green light it, and then they start going. And between the months that it takes to secure contracts and actors and shooting and post-production and special effects and all that kind of stuff, it takes a year to put together a 10-episode season because every episode totally rocked you know when you're talking about these science fiction shows i mean the effects are off the handle but uh but man they they can't guarantee the next season until the previous season has success and so that just is making for these big leaps anyway off my soapbox yeah <laughs> no i mean it was nice it was nice when when it first came out and discovery was 15 episodes mm-hmm. and you know we actually went through a stretch there where we had a new Star Trek episode just about every week for a whole year or pretty close to it. Yeah. Close to it. Yeah. And now we're getting into, you know, we're lucky if, you know, if we have Star Trek new episodes for half the year, three quarters of the year, you know, well, we got to just hope that as they continue to diversify the offerings and stuff that they'll, you know, be able to time things. I mean, we've got another long stretch coming up, We, I think, where we're going to have a, a bunch of episodes in a row. But, you know, Jim, the more they give us, the more we want. Isn't that the way of things? Pretty much. Yep. Pretty much. <laughs> so, Eric, uh, I hear there's some something new coming to Paramount+. Plus. Well, uh, new or I guess returning, but some of them are new. At any rate, we're finally, finally, finally all in one place. We are finally going to be able to see all 10 TOS and TNG Star Trek movies in one place. Now, um, we've had that here and there on and off months. Uh, There was like Netflix. There was, I don't know, a couple other places that had licenses. I think all of this has finally settled down because Paramount Plus, being the exclusive home of Star Trek television in the USA, uh, has always been such. But 
Since late 2022, the first 10 Star Trek feature films have only been available on HBO Max. We all got so confused. Paramount Plus has announced that the 10 Star Trek movies that exited the streaming service last October will finally be back starting June 1st. Hey, that's today. This includes the six movies featuring the cast of Star Trek TOS, including both theatrical and new 4K edition of the director's cut of Star Trek The Motion Picture. Also coming back are the four movies featuring the cast of The Next Generation. So pretty cool. I didn't know that they were doing 4K stuff over streaming services, but it looks like Paramount Plus, you can get 4K director's cut of Motion Picture. That's pretty darn cool. I feel like I need to go buy a bigger television or something. But I, I think well, that we would all agree that we always, we always hoped that these things would come back to Paramount, and it was pretty confusing last October when they just sort of disappeared off off a bunch of places, <laughs> went on to HBO. We're like, what's happening here? So, yeah, I'm glad they're back. Well, I got to tell you guys that my daughter, my awesome daughter, bought me a 58-inch Ultra HD 4K television for my birthday. Yeah. Got it all hooked That's up. Awesome. Yeah. And right before the podcast, I was watching Star Trek, the motion picture on Paramount Plus, the the new Ultra 4K version on my television, and I was blown uh-huh. away. Blown what, yeah, away. What did you think of the views of V'ger? <laughs> yeah. I, V'ger I was, look like in Oh, my God. And I didn't want to point something else out, too. Because um, I'm one of the people here I'm going to talk about. You remember when we were reviewing Picard Season 3 and we were constantly complaining that someone needs to turn on the lights because it's too dark? Mm-hmm. Well, I had that same problem, too. Everything was dark. But but if you have an Ultra HD 4K television, those dark scenes come out absolutely perfect on my television. Now, I went back and I, I, I was curious and I went back and watched um, one of the episodes of Picard where they're on the bridge and everything was so dark and murky. And I watched it on my new TV and all of it right off the screen. You could see the panels, the details, everything was there. And I don't know, it must have something to do with the, the way the 4k uh, ultra HD TV uh, broadcast the signal or something. I don't know, but it's no longer dark and and fuzzy in the background. You you can see everything, so it makes a big big difference. I don't know the technical reason, but it does. It's incredible. Hmm. So uh, so what you're saying is that they probably these days are making those shows with the assumption that you know most people are either already have or are moving towards a 4K world. Yes. Yes, because when, when I put it on, uh, my new TV, the one I just hooked up today, automatically switches. So when uh, when the show is being broadcast in Ultra HD 4K, it switches automatically to this whatever technology it is and automatically adjusts the screen and the settings for that broadcast, which is really cool. It comes right up on the screen, and it tells you, Dolby, HD, whatever, and it just changes it. And then 
it pops right off the screen, and you're like, oh, my God, this is incredible. But when I was watching them on my old TV, I was sitting there squinting because I couldn't, you couldn't really see what was going on in the back. Well, you guys know what I'm talking about because you oh, yeah. it on the podcast. Uh, but if you go and get, you get a brand new um, Ultra HD 4K TV, those dark scenes are no longer dark. They're actually perfect. So I'm very impressed. There you go. That's all I got to do. I, I, You know, I think I'm due for an upgrade, Jim. Well, you, you won't be disappointed. And, <laughs> and something else, too, um, I, I was – I was dreading it because when I set the TV up, but these TVs are so smart now, they do it sets itself up automatically. You, I, mm-hmm. I plug it in, it asks you for your email address. You put in your email address, it sends you a link. You tap the link, and then all of your apps that are currently on your TV, everything that's there, including my Star Trek screensaver, just goes on to your new television. You don't have to do anything. It just shows up there. The only thing you have to do is go back and put your passwords back in. And Netflix was a pain in the butt because they got these, these new rules about sharing your passwords and stuff. Um, that was a pain. But everything just transferred over. It was so easy. I couldn't believe it. So, yeah, you won't be disappointed Sweet. at all. So um, this, this next story, I've got this uh, story which – I'm glad that we're doing last because I think we're going to want to talk about this one. Uh, Star Trek actor explains why the next generation's code of honor should remain in the rotation despite its offensive content. Star Trek is a franchise that prides itself on being ahead of the curve on social change, but it hasn't had a perfect track record in its 50-plus years. When a especially egregious example exists with the Next Generation Season 1 episode, The Code of Honor. The media criticism from the cast and many fans have debated whether it should be taken out of the viewing rotation entirely for its poor representation. Paramount Plus could scrub the Next Generation's Code of Honor from its library and pull the episode out of syndication. Derek Lofton, known as Jake Sisko on DS9, says, I think you learn from history and you grow from it. You can't ignore it. If there is no progress and we can't recognize that it's something that we've evolved from as a society, if we don't see that difference, then we won't have moved anywhere. So as of right now, a code of honor is still available on Paramount+. Plus. And it's still streaming on H&I and all these other uh, places like Pluto TV, for instance. But what do you guys think? Do you think that they should pull this episode and pretend it never happened? Because I know where I stand on it. But what do you guys think? What do you think, Eric? Uh, no, I, I mean, of course not. I, I mean, here, here's where I come from. Um, you should not eradicate the past. You should educate about the past. And so I think that's what Sirach was saying there was that, you know, you, you, don't, you don't scrub it away and pretend like it didn't exist because it is part of history. Uh, I think if the Star Trek folks really wanted to address this in a very sophisticated and cool way, what they would do is that, you know, they have the ability to do things like Ready Room, 
or after trek or or those types of things shouldn't they have a little uh tacked on you know 10 15 minute uh talk interview um something with actors the director people who in hindsight have looked at this episode and said you know what guys uh, i think given today's social context this one is actually pretty bad and you know as the article was saying i think people even back in the day sort of questioned it um but uh you know it was the fourth episode of a brand new show that was still finding its feet um does that excuse it no but if you want people to learn from it, you don't erase it. You you educate. You add more information that lets people know, okay, here's why we now think that maybe it's not okay. That's where I'm coming from. How about you, Charles? Well, this episode I think of the of this is the first one we first really interact with other Klingons besides Worf. No, this isn't the Klingons one. The uh, Code of Honor is the one where they interact with a planet that um, oh. has, all, has all of the African-looking people on it. Um, I think there are uh, – who is it? Kennedy on the uh, Women at Warp podcast calls it like Space Africans or something like that. And, the Le- and the Lebowans. Yeah, and some of the ways in which they are portrayed, some of the ways in which they particularly treat Tasha Yar in the episode are pretty off-color, and so yeah. Okay, they, all right, now I remember that one. Yeah. But, okay, but this was, I think, the, one of the early ones that Tasha Yar really got to represent her character. Well, I think that's part and of the argument it, was that she was kind of treated like a piece of meat and not the Tasha Yar that she was – supposed to be on the show so she was she didn't get to shine and be the cool tasha that everybody wanted her to be i think yeah but it's star trek history i don't i i think we're right. too far we're yeah. too far in the future 50, we're okay not 50 years 30 years later and we're just now talking about trying to get rid of it it's like people say, well wait a minute what happened to that episode you can't just take that one episode out and say okay we're not because there's too many copies of it already existing. And I think it's just showing what was a view of how Gene Roddenberry and the writers had a view of one society. And we've changed to how we kind of see some societies. But what prevents us from going eventually going out into space and finding a similar type society? I think we just got to admit, hey, it's a possibility. Hey, it was a pest. It may not be one of the great episodes, but we're not going to sit there and take it out of rotation to get rid of it. Because the next thing you're going to sit there and say, oh, if we get rid of Code of Honor, then we should be getting rid of Spock's brain, too. That's 50-plus years. How can you actually get rid of the episode that everybody knows exists? How about you, Jim? What's yeah. your uh, what's your take on it? Well, I I'm against censorship of any kind for any reason. Mm-hmm. Any censorship is wrong. Um, period. And I don't, you know, this particular episode is absolutely about as racist as racist can be. But to remove it and and try to pretend it didn't happen is wrong. People need to see it. 
and they need to make up their own mind. You know, right. and, and actually, I did meet, I did get to meet Kennedy at Trek Long Island, by the way. Oh, did you really? Oh, cool. She was on, she was on one of my panels, and and uh, she she was at my uh, Michael Burnham panel and my Star Trek Five panel, and loved them both. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's why, Jim, I think you're saying the same thing here. It's like we – I think we're all generally against censorships, but what is important is that we we have conversations, right? Because if, if you just put something out there uh, without modern context these days and a whole bunch of people say, hey, you know what? This is a little off. We should do something about it. The answer isn't to just blow it away and pretend like it didn't exist. You gotta, you gotta attack that, and you gotta say, okay, yep, totally agree with you. Um, we're gonna leave it because this is a moment in time, right? There are moments in time that we see in all sorts of television shows, whether it's um, Neil Diamond in blackface in The Music Man, or you know, <laughs> uh, any of the yeah. other crazy things that have happened throughout time. You know, they're a moment in time. And the important com- thing is to, like, continue the conversations about them and keep talking about why we think they're okay, why we think they're not okay, you know, social context. I was going to say, if it ever came down to censorship, ever came down to censorship, I could see Airplane, a lot of stuff Leslie Nielsen da- did being taken down. I could see a lot of Mel Brooks stuff being taken down. But some of that's our past history. That was funny back then. Modern audiences, if you don't like it, you don't have to Move watch along. it. You don't have to click. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's funny because I was reading a list the other day on the Internet about 10 movies that were banned because of content. And a lot of, a lot of these movies were from the 80s. Movies that I grew up watching, for instance, Sixteen Candles was one of them. Um, the other one yeah. was uh, The Breakfast Club was another one. Um, and a lot of these movies that were made in the 80s, uh, you, you know, with 80s standards, the 80s ways of thinking, by today's standards, you'd be like, you know, they would never make that movie today, you know, for the, because, just because yeah. of those situations and you can't go back and unmake a movie or or ban a movie just because it's of when it was made people need to learn from that and i think that and and the other thing too is who was responsible for that particular episode gene roddenberry gene roddenberry was in complete control of season one of tng he approved of that episode and when you think about it that way, you got to stop and say, wait a minute. This doesn't even seem like the same person. So I don't, I don't know what was going through their heads when they, when they wrote that episode and came up with the costumes and the characters. And someone said, yeah, that's great. Let's, let's do this. Let's do that. Let's do this. And you got to ask yourself, why? Why? Didn't they learn from TOS? And obviously the answer is no, they didn't, which in and of itself is strange. 
I, there is, you know, Jim, I've learned recently that there is a cool article, I guess, if you can get a hold of it. Um, so Catherine Powers was one of the writers of that episode. And I guess in the Star Trek Next Generation magazine, issue number two, there's an article called Inside Code of Honor, where Catherine Powers and Michael Barron, who co-wrote the episode, actually talk a little bit about it. And I would be interested to read that article, excuse me, and see if, um, you know, see if they touch on that at all. Now, it's the TNG magazine, so I imagine it probably came out uh, back in the day, um, so may, maybe maybe not. But, um, but you know, it's written – it's co-written by a woman who, like, held uh, DC Fontana in high esteem and that kind of stuff. So it's not like – it's not like it was a couple of totally clueless, you know, for lack of a better term, white dudes <laughs> writing the, <laughs> the episode. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Interesting. But I, it sounds like we're all on the same page here, guys. Um, we we don't like censorship. We do like conversation. Um, you know, keep the conversation going, right? Absolutely. And the episode has been airing on TV, you know, since 1987. Uh, what purpose would it serve to erase it now? The damage has been done. Exactly. It's already been out there. You know, people can't learn from it if you don't expose them to it, you know? But I reiterate my, my idea, man. Let's have some official people make a little a little tag to it, a little thing where they can talk. It'd be a cool show, uh, actually, to do little, you know, 22-minute episodes that discuss previous episodes of TNG and I, I know podcasts do this all the time, right? But to have like an official source uh, for people who go back and say, well, you know, if we were to do it today, we'd do it differently. Exactly. Absolutely. Well, what did you guys think about Laura Banks? Uh, she was so much yeah. fun. Yeah, <laughs> well, it was funny because after Jim and I, I think Jim finished the book on Monday and I finished it on Tuesday or something like that, and we chatted with each other a little bit, and I said, I texted Jim, uh, man, by reading the book, she seems like a firecracker, and I will tell you, she was an absolute delight to talk to on the air here. She had great stories. She was very uh, generous with her time, and she was grateful when we asked her good questions. So, man, she was she was definitely a fun interview. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she she was absolutely awesome. Everything that was advertised, and uh, I did enjoy the book. And I gotta say, when I started reading it, I was looking for. I I thought it was going to be like you know the making of the Wrath of Khan, and there there is that in there, but there's a lot of other stuff in there too. So if you're expecting you know like a, a tell all about Star Trek, it's not exactly that. Although there is a lot of that in it, there's also a lot of other stuff. And it's a quick read and it's a fun read, bounces all over the place, but it comes around in a full circle at the end. So uh, check it out. You won't be disappointed. And if you do it on Kindle, it's only six bucks. So might as well give it a go. I couldn't believe it. I, I, I got it for six bucks and I read it last weekend at camp. It's a quick, easy read. 182 pages, I think. Something like Something that. Like that. I had credits. I only paid anyway. 74 cents for it. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> wow. 
So uh, <laughs> next week, guys, we have another guest on the show Ooh. next week. We're going to be talking with yeah. Chris Naylor. And Chris mm-hmm. Naylor is the stunt double for Captain Liam Shaw and Captain William T. Riker from Star Trek Picard Season 3. He appeared in every single episode of Picard Season 3. And he's going to be on to talk with us all about the experience Season 3. That'll be next week. Same bat time, same bat channel. So you definitely want to check that out. So I want to say thank you so much to Paul for hanging out and Trek talking with us. Uh, I know he had to run, but thank you so much, Paul. We appreciate it. And thank you for turning me on to Laura Banks. I didn't even know she had a book until he mentioned it. So thank you so much. And, of course, thank you so much to our very own Eric for hanging out and Trek talking with us. Thank you, Eric. Absolutely. A blast as always, guys. Thanks. And thank you so much to Charles for hanging out and Trek talking with us as well. We couldn't do the show without you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, and thank you for the author, because then you got me another book I need to read. It, it was definitely, definitely fun. I can tell you that much. You won't be disappointed. You will definitely enjoy it. And, of course, thank you so much to Laura Banks for hanging out and Trek talking with us. She was a charm. And it is my birthday. I think I mentioned that earlier. Laura Banks sang happy birthday to me, which is awesome. And we always play the birthday song, the special birthday song. So I'm going to play it right now for myself. With another mouth to feed Seems that everywhere you look today There's misery and greed I guess you know the earth is going to crash into the sun But that's no reason why we shouldn't have a little fun So if you think it's scary If it's more than you can take Just blow out the candles and have a piece of cake Happy birthday Happy birthday to you Happy birthday And I want to say thank you to every one of you guys who wished me a happy birthday on our Trek Talking page, on my Facebook page, who messaged me. Um, It really means a lot to me. Thank you so much, guys. Um, You know, as I always say, Star Trek fans are the best fans. You better believe it. And there's the proof. So thank you so much, everybody. I really appreciate it. You you don't know how, how much it means to me that you guys think about me. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And with that, it's time to say goodnight. So uh, we'll be back with you guys, same bat time, same bat channel next week. And just remember, Star Trek fans are the best fans. Please be good to each other and stay safe. Hailing frequencies are both. Good night, everybody. Happy birthday, Jim. Good night, fans. Happy birthday, Jim. Thank you. Thank you so much, guys, and we'll see you all next week. Bye-bye. Let's see what's out there. Engage. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? 
I kind of like the high-five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.